Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's podcast is sponsored by FastBitcoins.com. FastBitcoins provides a simple way for people to buy Bitcoin directly from their bank account or with cash in physical stores. Their services are rapidly growing in availability across the UK, Estonia, as well as Canada, and they're launching in Australia soon too. FastBitcoins is committed to providing high-quality Bitcoin-only services. They want to make sure that the growing number of people interested in buying and benefiting from the possibilities of Bitcoin can do so easily, securely, and with as few distractions as possible. Learn more about FastBitcoins' range of services at fastbitcoins.com, including how you can earn Bitcoin for free through their referral scheme. That is fastbitcoins.com. Fastbitcoins.com. Go check them out. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on an Australian British journalist and author of several fiction books. This is Helen Dale. Welcome to the show. Hello, Zuby. How are you? I am blessed and highly favored as always. I'm very well. How are you? How are you enjoying lockdown? How do you exercise? I mean, you're a fitness instructor. How do you even <laughs> manage to do your job? I actually just came back from a run and just had a super quick shower before jumping on this podcast. So I just started running this week. I actually hate running. Um, I despise running. So that's why I'm trying to grow to not hate it. I'm very much in the bodybuilding, powerlifting, lifting very yes, object. that's what I've always yeah, thought. Do you do that's what I do. skipping? I mean, that might be a good alternative. People who box often mm. skip. I do a little. Like, I'll be honest. I, I normally do the sort of minimum cardio that I can get away with. So I do some because I don't want my heart health to be, to be really bad or to not be able to do my training sessions, but I much more enjoy strength training. So I am still doing that. I've got a pull-up bar at home. I've been doing lots of bodyweight exercises, but I can't lie. This, this is in 16 years, this is the longest I've gone without going to the gym. So it is painful. That's extraordinary. Yes. I mean, I, I did think of you when they locked, they, the when I think, because I think they shut the gyms down before they, they shut all the restaurants and everything down. And, I, and you were the first person I thought of. Actually. Oh, thank I was thinking, you. Oh, my goodness. How did you do this job? <laughs> I appreciate that, Helen. <laughs> so, I couldn't think of anything worse. <laughs> oh, what, as in, uh, what, as in having the stuff shut down or? Yeah, just have it, having your entire career oh, and life okay. just whipped out from underneath your feet like that. Yeah, it's okay. I can, I can still do everything else. I'm, I'm still in shape. No one would look at me and say, oh, gosh, Zuby's let himself go. So I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. That's good. I'm very pleased <laughs> to hear. Because this whole lockdown thing is very, very peculiar. And I, I mean, I don't mind saying this because of the nature of your audience, but I'm going to confess it here. I have been very careful on social media at Twitter and, and Facebook and, and even in my journalism because I'm published a lot in sort of big outlets across the UK to not describe my home circumstances because I 
found it very confronting the ways people who, like me, who have my sort of background, have a nice house in the home counties with a garden and lots of birds and sun and all of this, <laughs> are telling people in London in tiny flats <laughs> that they have to stay in and, and they're not allowed to go and lie in Queen's Park in the sun. Yeah. And I just think, have you not paused to consider how you look yeah. very entitled? Yeah. You know, and I just won't say it because, <laughs> I mean, it's not hard to find out where people, journalists in particular with bylines all over the place. Yeah. It's not hard to find out where they live and what they do yeah. in their spare time. Yeah. When you're, when you're seeing celebrities standing outside their, uh, in their multi-million dollar or multi-million pound houses talking about how they feel like they're in prison and how they're suffering. <laughs> it's a little bit tone deaf. This is just so, no, no, don't yeah. go there. This yeah. is really bad. Have you not always to consider how you look? Yeah. Um, Helen, can you, can you bring, can you bring the mic a bit closer to you? Oh, sorry. Or yes. Uh, I mean, this is all very new to me. I'm apologies to Zuby's listeners who are used to him being extremely professional and exceptionally <laughs> good. I'm completely rubbish at this. And if you've ever seen me on the BBC, which is why I don't do it very often because I'm terrible. Um, I will do things like not speak into the microphone or, okay. um, you know, fail to look at the camera or you know, do, do something ridiculous, like flick my hair all the way through the interview. And I'm sure it drives them all which is why I work on the principle that I'm much better in print yeah. than I am anywhere else. That's all good. Practice makes perfect. So Helen, I've done a, I've done a really brief intro about you there, but why don't you tell the listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Okay, fair enough. Well, the, the first thing, I've been on trigonometry before, but mainly talking because I'd done a big feature on Australian politics about the Australian election and they got me to do commentary on that because the Australian political system is so distinctive. So I'll give you you and your listeners a, a bit of background on this because I've got sort of two careers and one of them is in one country and one of them is in the other. Mm -hmm. Over here, if you've read stuff of mine, you'll have seen it in The Spectator or CapEx or The Critic or Standpoint or journalism in the of the magazine sort. Now, I didn't start as a journalist. I became a journalist by accident and very much of accident. And it's actually only been full time since the middle of 2016. Mm -hmm. For a long period before then, I was a lawyer. I was in practice and I've been in different areas of the law and on both, in both arms of the profession. I started out as a barrister, which are the ones that wear the wigs and the gowns and, mm -hmm. and sort of dress like somebody from the 18th century, which is true. It's the dress of, of a sort of middle-class person from the 18th century. And uh, so I, I did that at first. And then I moved to the other arm of the profession, which is to be a solicitor. And I've worked as a corporate solicitor and what is described as a government solicitor uh, in Australia, but isn't really because the parliamentarian I was a legal advisor to was not actually in the government. He was what's known as a crossbencher which is someone who isn't in either of the major political parties. Mm -hmm. And before that, before I became a lawyer and went into legal practice, I initially became known in Australia as a novelist. Mm -hmm. And this book, I'll hold it up for you. For those get, just get listening. Easily off from Waterstones or Amazon or Blackwells or whatever. Um, that's the new edition that came out. It was a 20th anniversary edition that came out a few years ago, but it's easily available now. Mm -hmm. If you see one with a red and and blue cover. And um, if you buy it, I won't get anything for it because that's one of the old editions. Uh, but it's quite likely to be valuable, particularly okay. if it's signed, because it, it was sort of a whole lot of history with my, my first book. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that came 
won a big award when I was only 22, which was quite This book is, uh, for people who are not watching, this book is called The Hand That Signed the Paper. And you originally published this under a pen name, which I can yes, see I is, still, is still sort of in the background on the cover. On the cover, yes. They yeah. put, they put the publisher, my, my, when they did the, the, the anniversary edition, the publisher sort of went to town with the design. It's mm. very pretty design, very cleverly done design and put pen names in the background. Yeah. Now, this, as it explains on here, won multiple literary awards in Australia and they put two of them on there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one that is really well known is the Miles Franklin Award, which is the Australian equivalent of the Booker Prize or the Pulitzer Prize, yeah, sort of the peak national literary award. Mm-hmm. And I was the youngest ever winner of it. Now, obviously, Congrats. this is for a novel, not journalism. You know, I, I was a writer of novels. But one of the things that novelists can do fairly well is write what is known as colour, colour writing, because you, you've got the skill to be descriptive and and do travel writing and uh, and writing about the turf, actually, that kind of thing. So very, very slowly, and it was very gradual because I was a lawyer and I needed to do my job, and mm-hmm. law is quite a demanding profession, long hours and that kind of thing. Very gradually, I would start to write some other things, mainly in Australia for a newspaper called The Australian, which is the sister paper to The Times over here and to The Wall Street Journal in the United States, mm-hmm. and they share copy. So occasionally people will say to me, oh, I saw a piece of yours in the Wall Street Journal. And I go, when? Oh, and okay. it's purely because they've taken a piece from one of the others. Mm-hmm. That happens quite a lot because they share each other's copy, basically. And they okay. do pay very well, which is why I've always enjoyed writing for those papers. And what happened was I moved over to the UK I've always moved back and forth ever since I was a child. My, my parents are both British mm-hmm. and I'm a, 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 a true dual national in that I'm a home student in both jurisdictions, Australia and the UK, which is very unusual. Normally you have to pay uh, international fees in one country or another. Oh, and I okay, don't. I That's very unusual. Gotcha. It, it, they sometimes, lawyers will sometimes use the, use the expression true dual. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a true dual national. You know, I have NHS and Medicare cover of my own in the two different countries and all of that. So I became known in Australia as a novelist and then got a little bit of, never very insistently, a little bit of colour writing, a bit of reviewing, you know, that kind of thing in Australia. Mm -hmm. Then I came over here and started to do journalism. Now, at first, it was similar to what I'd done in Australia. So it was kind of colour writing and book reviewing and that kind of thing. And you've probably seen a lot of my stuff in Quillette. Mm -hmm. And overwhelmingly, it's cultural commentary and book reviews. But because I unusually have legal qualifications in both English law and Scots law, I did my English law at Oxford, where I was at Brasenose, which is a very strong law college. Mm -hmm. And I did my Scots law at the University of Edinburgh. Um, It's one of the two sort of leading law universities, the other is Glasgow. And it's got a different legal system, Scotland has its Roman law. And so relatively unusually, I had this sort of unusual combination of qualifications. So people started to approach me to write about Brexit. And so for about three years, gradually building in intensity until last year, where it nearly drove me mad, mm-hmm. um, I became a Brexit organ grinder and the organ grinder's monkey. And I just wrote about nothing but Brexit for multiple newspapers, multiple trade magazines. Mm -hmm. I write for a trade magazine in the US called Law and Liberty, which only publishes lawyers. And it was literally, here is a British lawyer explaining what the hell is going on in the UK for Americans. (laughs) 
<laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. And so that was all I did. And my last really big piece on Brexit mm-hmm. actually was published on the 30th of December, 2019. Okay. So I turn, so in Britain, I'm this person who bangs on about Brexit. Mm-hmm. In Australia, I'm this person who writes novels. Yes. And the irony is, is I was in the UK banging on about Brexit. And then in two years, in 2017, and then in 2018, I had two novels come out one after the other. This is the one in, from 2017. Kingdom of the Wicked, Kingdom of book the Wicked, one, rules. Book one. And then in 2018 is the sequel, which is book two. Mm-hmm. And of course, because I have this established reputation as a novelist in Australia, I have to, had to go back to Australia to do author tours to support them. Sure. And I'm quite pleased with these books because you know, they managed to get noticed over here. And, you know, I had people like Tim Harford saying, oh, these are, this is really clever and well done. I like these. And so I finished up with this British audience mm. who found me through journalism, okay, whereas my Australian audience, they see an article by me in the newspaper and they, oh, that's that novelist sounding mm. off in the newspaper again. Mm. Now, what I will do, because I... I am no good at this, but my publisher, well, my editor, my publisher is splendid, <laughs> is I'm going to read the blurb on the back of book one. Okay, Because go I ahead. think some of your listeners yeah. might be interested. Okay, please do. 784 Ab Urbe Condita, 31, 31 AD. Jerusalem sits uneasily in a Roman empire that has seen an industrial revolution and now has cable news and flying machines and rights and morals that are strange and repellent to the native people of Judea. A charismatic young leader is arrested after a riot in the temple. He seems to be a man of peace, but among his followers are zealots and dagger men sworn to drive the Romans from the Holy Land. As the city spirals into violence, the stage is set for a legal case that will shape the future, the trial of Yeshua ben Yusuf. Intricately imagined and ferociously executed Kingdom of the Wicked is a stunning alternative history and a story for our time. Oh, so it, it makes me want to read it. Yes, basically, I rewrote the gospel stories. Okay, uh, but I did the speculative fiction thing, the, the Neil Stevenson and um, Philip K. Dick, like um, the Man in the High Castle, and rewrote it as if the outcome had, ha- if things had happened differently, but I kept the same cast of characters. Gotcha. And I think this. This is the problem with novelists. I think Kingdom of the Wicked is really good, mm-hmm. and. He, it, each, if you add the two volumes together, it's probably sold about 20,000 copies, which sounds good. It sounds terrific. But this book, which won all the awards, mm-hmm. um, has probably sold 140,000 copies. And I don't think it's as good. <laughs> well, but the thing is, that, that's the, what the novelist doesn't get to tell the reading no. public. No, it's, it's like musicians. How, how, how many musicians of any genre do people think that their first album is their best. It doesn't matter. Yes. You know, 20 years later, they drop another 10 years later, 30 years later, people still are like, oh no, that one from 1995. Is <laughs> that was And the I best swear, one. I mean, you're, you've, how many albums have you put out? Um, eight albums and EPs. Yeah. Okay. How m- And you obviously have views about which one or ones you think yeah, are better. Yeah. I, I generally think I get better over time. Um, yes. especially with, indiv- with me, it's less with albums, more with individual songs. So there will be individual songs on my first or second album that people are like, oh yeah, that, that one is still your best song. You know, that, Goonie that flow. one. Um, Goonie flow. 
Oh, is that is that is that a? <laughs> That's my favourite. That's yours. your favourite. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. It's very um, good. It's oh, very. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I've got some choral background, so singing with yourself like that is very hard to do well. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, I do get people asking me who who that is on the chorus, and I'm like, oh, that, yeah, that's no, me. no, I recognised it yeah. as you, uh, but I thought, oh, this is very clever. He he knows what he's doing. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Mm. Um, so actually, I'm really curious about the. So you've kind of got this this dualistic uh, sort of not not life, but career, and not just between two different types of writing and sort of two different art forms, shall we say, but also two different countries, and the split is sort of aligned with them. So I guess number first question I have is which one do you which do you enjoy more, or how, what what are the sort of what this is fulfilling is really about each one? Question. Yeah. You know, for your next job, you get a job on Newsnight. I'm going to put the person on the spot. When I'm doing it, yeah. I love writing fiction. The feeling of being in that flow of writing fiction is extraordinary. Mm. Um, it's like you just go off to this special place and do this amazing thing and it's like coming back down to earth. Yeah. So that feeling of writing fiction is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Getting into that point is very difficult. Yes. Journalism, I don't enjoy as much writing mm -hmm. at it, right? Actually, the physical experience of writing journalism. Yeah. There were times, for example, when I was writing about Brexit, that I just got absolutely sick of people getting fundamental, basic legal principles. And it was both sides were doing this leave and remain. Mm -hmm. you know, and they were, they were trying to do it to sort of serve their own arguments and serve their own interests. And it was not attractive. It did not look good. Um, and it really started to make me quite cranky. And so I thought, oh, I'm being given a perch in all these various publications just to be accurate. And so I became obsessed with accurately stating the law and trying to go through clearly and carefully with readers, particularly when I was writing for Australians or Americans, and get across exactly what was going on because it made me angry to see people making so many errors. Sure. And this was something I knew about. You know, I had a lot of expert knowledge, practitioner experience and expert knowledge and, and training and so on and so forth. This may not mean much to a lot of people, but some of your listeners will know. My tutor for constitutional law was Vernon Bogdanor, Professor Vernon okay. Bogdanor. Bray's nose. I, I, don't, I don't know who that is. So No. Well, his main claim to fame was that he was also David Cameron's tutor at Bray's okay. Nose because okay. Cameron went to the same college. Um, in constitutional law, but Cameron did PPE and I did law. And the P arguments PPE has that, a different meaning now. Yes, I know. <laughs> Sorry for the Americans. Yeah. PPE is politics, philosophy, and economics. Yeah, yeah. It's a degree at the University of Oxford, yeah. and is enormously controversial because there is there is an argument to be had that the and I think it's a legitimate one that it's too shallow because you only spend a year out of your three years on each of those areas. Mm -hmm. Um, you can do it so you only do two, but most people do three, all three. And uh, you can't learn very much in a year. I mean, you can't do a law degree in a year. You'll finish up coming out at the end and being useless to any law firm that hires <laughs> you. So there's quite a lot of controversy over the PPE qualification. Very mm. clever young people do it. You have to be clever to get into Oxford. Both you and I went through that experience. You know exactly what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, and they're kind of wasted. They're very high intellect is wasted on this qualification that's really quite shallow. So there's quite a lot of controversy about PPE. But anyway, the logic and the underlying reasoning that David Cameron fed into both his ultimate position on Brexit, where he 
fought the Remain camp on the Remain side, mm -hmm. but also why he had to hold a <coughs> referendum um, was very much um, from Vernon Bogdanort. So okay. people knew this and thought and, and, that and I what, And what was, what was that specifically? What was the reason that he okay, had to do okay, that? Okay, I, I don't know. Oh, the rationale, the legal rationale, um, and this is sort of a basis of constitutional, sort of English constitutionalism, is the way authority and power is exercised in a Westminster system. So basically the people of the United Kingdom, when they vote, elect representatives who then reflect the power back to them, the power conferred on them by the people. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not like the United States. In Britain, the system is constructed. So those people who are given that power from the people are then not allowed to give away that power uh, to a third entity mm -hmm. without the people's consent. And the Maastricht Treaty, what the Maastricht Treaty did was that in certain crucial areas, and I'll only name two, immigration and trade policy, power that was conferred on the representatives in Westminster by the people was given away to the European Union without a referendum. Okay. Now, in 1993, Vernon Bogdanor told John Major, said, you, you must put this to a referendum. You are going to create a constitutional crisis, if not now, in the future. And unfortunately, because at the time, and this, is, this reflects poorly on the Tories, um, at the time, because Vernon Bogdanor was a Lib Dem and Major was obviously a Conservative Prime Minister, uh, Bogdanor's advice was ignored. Now, you might think someone's making a brexit argument despite being a Lib Dem. Mm -hmm. The Lib Dems, when Bogdanor was involved with them, are not like this mad bunch of loonies who, who announce their pronouns now and, and try to celebrate <laughs> Ramadan by eating bacon. I saw that. Oh, my God. That oh, man I, I tweeting that out one. a picture of Ramadan. Oh, I'm breaking the fast at Ramadan. Are you serious? Lib Dem counsellor. No way. No way. <laughs> on his place. Oh, how did and, I miss that? And all That's these amazing. Jewish and Muslim people I know who <laughs> follow me on Twitter or something, they were all going, um, fun bit that all Jews and Muslims follow, even oh, if no. they don't follow any of the rest of their respective religions, is the oh, no. no bacon. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty basic. <laughs> oh, no. It was very funny. Was this on, was this on Twitter? Yes. Oh, yeah. no. And he got, I mean, the absolute idiot. And then he said, I have to eat this, this sort of food because I ha I'm allergic. I have allergies. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, dear Lord. Oh, no. No. <laughs> Talk no. To you, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Yeah. And <laughs> but, yeah why so why was he? Well, no, I'm, I'm curious. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm actually curious about this. W was he just trying to sort of show some sort of like solidarity with the yes, community? Yes, that's okay. What it was. Okay. Yes. So sort of going out in sympathy and then, and then not even bothering to like <laughs> read the first page of the Quran, basically. Or, you know, look up Islam on Wikipedia and find yeah. out basic principles that's of That's funny. That is funny. <laughs> it was just sort of. Um, it was really quite, but, so, but they didn't used to be like that. The Lib Dems yeah. used to be an interesting political grouping and they were the heir to the Gladstonian tradition of liberalism in Britain, which is kind of gone now, which is a terrible shame. I mean, Stephen Davies, wonderful scholar at the University of Manchester, often says if the Lib Dems want to be relevant again, they need to just go back to being the Liberal Party and stop mm. being mad. And I think he's absolutely right. And so they didn't used to be like that. And so Vernon Bogdanor gave this advice John Major. It was ignored. Um, as you know, as most people know, Major made Maastricht a confidence issue um, because it was before the Fixed Term Parliaments Act and that meant that it was passed and 
what happened? I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot of politics right now, by the way, yeah, what happened people view me in this political lens and I'm like, I know nothing about British politics. <laughs> this stored up an immense, ahead of steam, I suppose, ahead of constitutional steam was stored up over the course of 20 odd years. Okay. And it culminated. And, and David Cameron, because he'd been taught by then, and I was, and I was taught exactly the same thing. When, when, when David Cameron was saying, you know, we're going to have to have a referendum on this, um, mm if the Conservatives win a majority, a lot of people get stuck into David Cameron and he could be a bit twee and, they, and he was a bad PM and, and pigs and all of the other jokes that are made about David Cameron. Sure. Um, but his arguments for holding a referendum if the Conservatives won a majority at the 2015 GE, which they did, mm -hmm. um, are actually very sound and constitutionally accurate. And a lot of people, not all, I mean, the sensible people are aware, lawyers from both Leave and Remain mm -hmm. are aware that this was a very large issue and it should have been dealt with one way or the other before Maastricht was signed. Okay. And it wasn't. And we finished up with a much worse problem because it wasn't dealt with in 1993 when Vernon Bogdan said it should have been dealt with. That was when the referendum should have happened. Okay. And what would have happened then is it's quite likely that the British people would have rejected the handing over of those powers. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's been a persistent undercurrent of, of British politics okay, that's interesting. Uh, for a long time. Yeah. But they didn't want to, in 1993, leave the European Union. Sure. So what you would have finished up with is Britain gradually heading towards something like the EEA, like the Norwegians or the Swiss or that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And it all would have happened very naturally and organically. And there would have been no none of this dreadful division. And the UK would still be a member of the EU, but mm -hmm. would have much more significant <clears throat> carve-outs. It would just be a free trade club, which was why my, gotcha. Margaret Thatcher wanted to join so, the big free trade sorry, club. So, sorry to interrupt you. So if I'm getting this clear, so a lot of people, the sort of popular narrative is that David Cameron sort of caved to people like Nigel Farage and people who are pushing for Brexit. And that was the only reason he had this referendum because he kind of like caved. So what I'm understanding is that that's not really the fundamental case here it's more that this it's is not something the constitutional that was, case no okay. politically it may well be okay um i wouldn't say to nigel farage so much that's yeah. not true but to forces within the conservative party gotcha um uh, the tories have spent since thatcher basically fighting internally Banging on about Europe, David Cameron used to call it, you know, this constant banging on about Europe. And a lot of people, you know, if you've paid any attention to British political Twitter, were very shocked when Keir Starmer came out and agreed with Boris Johnson saying, no, I don't want a Brexit extension. Mm -hmm. And they don't understand why he's doing that. Because now the torch, the pro-Europe torch, has gone from the Tory party. They've, the, the Tories have done one of their periodic national reinventions of themselves and become the party of leave mm -hmm. um, and the party of economically responsible remain. That was the, the, the logic of, as well. The party, the party of uh, but, the, but, the, but the reason Keir Starmer has, is doing what he is doing when it comes to the Europe issue is Labour is now in the position if it's not very careful, where it will spend the next 20 years banging on about Europe. Mm -hmm. And anybody with the faintest knowledge of British politics and history is aware of the extent to which the Tories inflicted terrifying instability on themselves, kept losing leaders, even prime ministers, because the party kept internally banging on about Europe. Mm -hmm. And what Cameron thought he would achieve with the referendum, apart from the constitutional arguments in the back of his head that came from his tutor at Oxford, 
but he also thought that this would fix it. Mm-hmm. But the reason he thought it would fix it was because he thought Remain would win. And of course, yes, I'm, I'm, aware, I'm aware of that part. <laughs> and of course, that, that all turned to complete blew up everywhere, all over everyone. Yeah. And uh, so there we are. Gotcha. But yes, constitutionally, the reason is you can't delegate powers yeah, no, given that to you particular, by the people yeah, without that, people's that's, consent. That's interesting. That's like a sort of important detail that I don't think many people sort of latch onto. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's, it's funny how in this time period we're in now, how quickly Brexit has kind of become a, a, a not a thing. I feel like in the US, everyone was, if you think of the beginning of the year, in the UK, it was all Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. US, it was all impeachment, impeachment. And, and so quickly, <laughs> I, I've heard very little about like, that. it's just like, that's just, that's just gone. Something else happened and it's just everyone's attention and outrage and emotions have, have totally gone elsewhere. Was that everything has become coronavirus, and yeah. that's why you've had this in in a lot of countries. You've had this extraordinary ra- what's what's known amongst political scientists and pollsters as what, as a rally effect, mm. which is where it doesn't matter who's in power and whether they've got two heads and green teeth, um, they've become enormously popular. So Donald Trump's had a rally effect in the US. Jacinda Ardern, who's a very different politician, has had a rally effect in New Zealand. Scott Morrison's had a rally effect in Australia. Boris Johnson's had a rally effect here, mm-hmm. you know, where he's just impervious. They're just impervious because they seem to be almost leading a government of national unity. Yeah. Although that added to that is that the leaders of the opposition in both the UK and Australia are competent. Yes. You know, Keir Starmer's just nothing like Jeremy Corbyn. He's just a normal person. It's nice to see. And <laughs> in Australia, Anthony Albanese mm-hmm. is also is is a normal person. He's competent. He's kind. You know, he he he's not a fool. Yeah. Um. I I, I struggle to understand American politics. I think they're completely oh, really? mad. I mean, I understand, I do, I do I understand American politics. The system with a nice, yeah. stable leadership leader of the opposition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I probably know more about American politics than I do than I do British. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I know a little bit, but yeah. I, a little knowledge is dangerous, so I keep my mouth closed mostly. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. I mean, um. So coming coming back to the the sort of earlier question, I mean, so I think that because I'm asking this as someone who also does two, well, more I do more than two things, but I do a lot of different things, which I feel use quite different, very different parts of my brain, right? If I'm recording a podcast like this, or I'm doing some kind of social commentary or something, that's very much one thing. But if I'm if I'm creating a song, I'm just coming up with an idea in my head and turning it into musical form. That's like a, a very different thing. And they both satisfy different parts of my brain. So I, I sort of imagine with you, that's kind of similar because, you know, when you're, you're talking about politics and Brexit and legal stuff, that, that's, very, that's very much one thing. But then it's like you also are writing these incredibly creative novels and coming up with- Yes, it is. It's a completely different part of my head. Yeah. Really you're, you're, yeah. And how do you- mm-hmm. What's your what's your kind of process for that? Because I am curious as a creative person. I get people all the time who are like, "How do you how do you even write a song? How do you come up with it?" And it can be tricky to explain. But I think with a novel specifically, I always think this with um with novels and with with films because of the length, right? Because of the length mm-hmm. of them, I'm kind of like, how do you how do you even think of this? So you were talking about um you were talking about your book, uh, The Kingdom of the Wicked. So what how what's your process for coming up with the idea 
and thinking, oh yeah, that's all right. I, I can understand how you think of an idea for a nonfiction book, right? Okay, I want to. Oh, I want to write a book about fitness. It's very clear. I don't need to be yes. super creative, but in that case, yeah, it's like I know this stuff. I have this experience. Exactly. I have these skills. Exactly. So, I think I can share those ideas skillfully to others. Yes. I know a lot about personal training. Da da da. Yes, I can yes. imagine how you. Yes. Yeah. So it's harder yeah. for me to conceive. Whoa. Okay. How do you? How? Where did this idea come from? And then. How do you materialize it? Did you, did you sort of think of the whole majority of the concept and then you fill in the details or do you do it somewhat as you go along? How, what's your process for that? I'm curious. I'm a fairly high level conceptual thinker. Uh, when I come to writing fiction and I've got three novels now and I've got a fourth one on the go, I come up with a concept first that's very, very theoretical. Mm. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, the book I'm working on now and you can see where it comes from. And I don't have a title for it yet, but I can give you a one sentence elevator pitch, basically, okay. is what would have happened if the UK had voted to leave in 1975, okay. which was the last time there was a Brexit referendum. And at the time they voted to remain. Mm -hmm. And so that's speculative fiction. It's like Kingdom of the Wicked. It has that same quality. Uh, but And it also involves me thinking of alternative paths that mm. history could take. Now, there are, I've had to, to make that work, I've had to move the furniture. And the, the most obvious moving of the furniture that I've done is John Smith doesn't die. So there is no Tony Blair. Tony okay. Blair doesn't become leader of the Labour Party because John Smith becomes prime minister. Mm -hmm. Now, you can hear the sort of high level political journalist talking when I frame that. But when it comes to be written, it will be written as a novel overwhelmingly about ordinary people mm -hmm. and all the politics and all the speculative fiction and all the science will very much be in the background. But I have to build that world in my own head by doing extensive research and writing that never sees the light of day, although it might in the form of an essay. Mm -hmm. There is an essay at the end of, of this book that was also published by the Cato Institute, so mm -hmm. you can read it without buying the book, that is if essentially documents my thinking, process of thinking that I went through when um, I came up with Kingdom of the Wicked. Mm -hmm. So I come up with the very high-level framework and do a lot of research for it. Yeah. And as a process of the research, I then start to think of ideas of of real people and I start to populate the framework with characters mm -hmm. and I build the characters up in incredible detail. Now, have you ever played Dungeons and Dragons? I have not. I'm somewhat familiar with it. I know people in my boarding school right. and stuff used well, to. You will know, those of you who played D&D, and I, I'm so old, I've never played the game version. I've only ever played the ones with the dice and mm -hmm. the dungeon master and, and the board game. Yeah. Um, but you will know that there's a character matrix that you use in Dungeons and Dragons. Now, when I build my characters for all of my novels, I use the Dungeons and Dragons character matrix. Okay. So chaotic, neutral, chaotic, good, you know, um, or ordered evil, chaotic evil, that kind of thing. And I have the character matrix in front of sort of pinned, usually pinned up on the wall. Mm -hmm. um, and I gradually, as I'm working on my character profiles, I gradually, each box gets a name or a couple of names. And once I've worked out my characters and what sort of orientation they have, I then do the dungeon master thing. You mm -hmm. come across a crudely drawn map. 
So I then put them in situations the way a dungeon master would in Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. And build the story out of that. Now, if you read my novels and, you know, you've got, oh, goodness, nearly half a million words there mm-hmm. to, to get through, you will not notice any of this. Yes. You will not notice any of the, the background that goes into it. Yeah. But that's how I do it. Okay. And I've done it three times now, and I'm in the process of doing it for my what I call my Brexit book. So it will follow the same pattern. That's interesting. Now, that is completely different from journalism. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it is like, <laughs> it is like I grow an extra eye yeah. to write fiction. Yeah, because well, um, yeah, one of them, like I said, one is based in fact. So if something is about fact or knowledge or, or even opinion, that's really different to creativity, right? For example, there, there are podcasts which are like almost storytelling podcasts where mm. it, it's like a book, but it's a, in podcast form. And I have no idea where I would even begin to, to craft that kind of thing. Cause I'm, I'm creative in one sense, but in that sort of sense, I, maybe if I really, really, really tried over a long period of time, I, I could do it. I mean, I have written short stories and stuff when I was in school, but it wasn't something that sort of came naturally to me like other things, other things do. So I, I am really, and I, and I speak to more, most authors I know have written nonfiction books. Mm. I don't know many novelists. I know a lot of people who have written books. I've got some of them on my bookshelf, but they're all nonfiction. So, mm. well, majority anyway. So yeah, it's, it does really intrigue me of that, that process. I was supposed to have a book, a nonfiction book come out this year, but of course it's been delayed because of coronavirus. Okay. And it was literally going to be a linked collection of my pieces on Brexit. Mm. Um, I don't know whether it's going to, I mean, I wrote so much, I, I worked out, um, like I, I, was, I started to keep a running total and I think I've written about 100,000 words on Brexit, wow. which is a 400 page book. Yeah. What <laughs> and I mean, so- and some of it's a bit repetitive. I'd have to yeah. go through and cut this article out because I think it makes a similar point or the same yeah. point as that article, whatnot. But I'm reasonably confident that I could still produce a 300-page book on Brexit, on Brexit. Yeah. and everything in there would be new and original. You know, as what, in each what makes you would be different what from makes it. you so passionate about Brexit? I notice with with some with when it comes to Brexit, it's, it's I don't I'm very dispassionate about Brexit. Um, but some people are super duper passionate about it. What is it that drives that passion? People have very strong views about the substantive content of national identity. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have very strong views, particularly in this country, in part because in many respects, England in particular, but also Scotland, were among the first true nation states mm-hmm. in the modern sense. You know, high state capacity, uniform systems of law, excellent education systems, albeit only for people at the top of society, but every civilization was like that. A capacity for self-criticism as in, oh, we did this wrongly. We need to fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, This is very, very unusual in the context, in the larger context of of human history. You just don't see it very often. Civilizations have almost no capacity to, for example, I mean, I'm I'm picking an ancient civilization here because my first degree was before I became a lawyer was in classics. If you look at the speech of Cracticus, which is put in the mouth of a a British chieftain by Mm -hmm. the Roman historian Tacitus, um, and it includes the um, very famous quotation, um, they make a desert and call it peace. So, I mean, imagine a Roman saying that about his own people. Now, the way he does that is by putting the words in the mouth of an enemy. But by giving Caractacus, the, the, the British chieftain, such a tremendous speech, 
and portraying him as a real person, albeit an enemy. Uh-huh. What Tacitus shows is this capacity for self-criticism of one's, even even if one's own civilization is very, very great, you still have this ability to criticise it. It's very rare historically. Mm. It is something for all the, its historic greatness as a civilization. it is something that China struggles with. It's not just modern China with this mm-hmm. inability to take criticism of, over coronavirus. It's yeah. a cultural weakness. Sure. Um, in in Chinese civilization that is thousands of years old mm. and it probably contributes and I, I strongly recommend reading some of Steve Davies's work on this the historian at the University of Manchester as mentioned okay um, I, it probably contributed to China being the country that almost but not quite had an industrial revolution and the reason it didn't quite hit that bar that you have to hit to, to, to industrialize is because it lacked the ability to self-criticise. Mm. So, so there's something quite striking in the context of European history about England and Scotland. Okay. And, and, you think that that's, so and that's people, sort of, even if people don't specifically know the history, because most people won't, that's sort of in the culture and just in yes. the people. Okay. It's embedded in the, in, in the psychology of the people. Okay. I mean, this is, this is very, I mean, obviously, it's quite widely known, and I, I'm happy to say it again. I'm a Tory. I'm a fairly traditional conservative in the British sense. So it's cultural conservatism rather than social conservatism. It's mm-hmm. quite different in the two countries. Sure. But that very strong rooted sense of what a country and culture and people's specific way of approaching the world is, is sort of embedded in conservatism. Edmund Burke talked about conservatism being a contract between the generations, mm-hmm. the generations that have gone the generations that are with us and the generations yet to be born. Okay. And so the reason Brexit on all sides, because there are remain ways of making this argument too, particularly in the in the history in the context of the history of one nation Toryism, people are deeply rooted in their culture and history mm-hmm. and become extremely invested in it. And that is why the Brexit debate was so fraught. Yeah. Now initially I was like you, I was kind of superficially interested, mm-hmm. but not terribly taken with it and yeah. was still busily trying to write about Ascot and things like this. You know, <laughs> what the colour rider does. Um, you know, when we eventually have Ascot again, publishers of the world, I would like tickets, please, so I can write about Ascot. Uh, you know, I couldn't go to Cheltenham and it was the last festival and all of this kind of, argh, that kind of thing. Uh, Poor you. I was kind of not... I was not terribly interested either. Yeah. And what got me interested was people making basic legal errors, mm. you know, not understanding what progressive powers were. And I don't want to go into all of this. I've done one legal thing for you already and it gets boring for people mm-hmm. who aren't lawyers. But, I mean, making very basic and fundamental legal errors, and I spat off about it on Twitter or on Facebook and, and because I'm loads and loads of my followers on Twitter and friends that I have are from either the Canberra Press Gallery or the or the, the Westminster Gallery or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. They, oh, can you write about this? Do you have a law degree? Oh, your Vernon Bogdanor was your teacher, wasn't he? Da, 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 da. And so that's how I got suckered into Brexit. And I must say I that, became, that, that guy has a great name. It sounds like a character from a, I don't from know what nationality it is. Sounds like a Harry yeah, Potter Harry character. Or Polish or something. Yeah, it's a, it's a great name. Every time you say it, I, I feel like you're talking about a, a fictional character. Yeah, you sort of you imagine him with a shield and yeah. one of those ten foot swords. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, is, this, is this person an Oxford law professor? Yeah. I, know, I, know, I, know, I now don't want to Google him because I, I don't want to see what he looks like because I have an image yeah. in my brain and I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, so that's how I got tangled up in it. And I got passionate about it yeah. because of people making errors and it was schoolgirl school errors and it sure, was very sure. embarrassing. Uh, the, the irony is, is that because I then had the, developed this sort of reputation for banging on about Brexit, and one of the things I did do quite a lot of is I tried to take various economic models seriously and write about them in an intelligent way. And that was enough to show to people that I was also numerate. And so then I had people, and I had one newspaper, which shall remain nameless, attempt to get me to write a piece about Neil Ferguson's modelling for coronavirus. Okay. And I believe I sent them a link to the Oxford University Mathematics Department webpage and said, you might want to get a mathematician, not a lawyer, to write mm. about this. Um, and, yes, I know the experts in pretty much everybody's country, they all came up with different policy ideas. Yeah. Lots of different countries have tried different strategies. It seems that the ones that were used in Taiwan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand were the most successful, the, the, the track and test mm -hmm. model, and also very, very rigorous quarantine, just shutting the borders. Yeah. Um, but people didn't know that when those policies were introduced. Yeah. I mean, there might have been a bit of a hint in places like Australia or Taiwan because they had to deal with SARS. I'm, I'm um, finding that people don't really want to talk about places that have handled it well. Are you, are yeah, you finding that? That's like, another thing. Yeah, I, mean, well, that's really... the, I mean, I suppose that's the availability heuristic that goes with the news. Yeah. You know, people, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. So they want all the dreadful stories, you know, about New York and London. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. Although London's come good now, that whole irony is, or, or Northern Italy when it was in the toilet and that kind sure. of thing. Um, but the point I'm making, and you know, there's this sort of joke that's told amongst statisticians and your prediction is difficult especially about the future um, <laughs> and i was just sort of thinking nobody knows what's going to work here because it's a novel virus yeah exactly that's the point and so i i, I very unusually for me i rejected a commission because yeah. i just thought no you have to find someone you don't want a jobbing lawyer who happens to have got an a in maths at a level yeah. <laughs> um, you actually want to find one who is who used their a yeah. in maths at a level and then went off and did a maths degree rather than yeah. a law degree and even there you won't necessarily get it right but no. um the thing is no no one's an but, expert i, I actually yeah. saw I'm, i i'm stealing this quote from someone because i think someone just said it on on twitter i don't think it was like a well-known person but i was like that's actually perfect they said it takes time to become an expert and this thing is so new that nobody is an expert on it which no. is the truth I, pe people you could have studied even if you studied virology or you've studied mathematics or you've studied we don't we don't we, no one knows right like people even the experts we, we've seen just just how wrong i mean if you go back just to january or february or march mm. how wrong many of these models that everything has been based on have, have been shown to be and how wildly inaccurate Absolutely. a lot of the predictions were. And it's like, yeah, well, even the experts, so-called experts, they might be an expert on, you could be an expert on one virus, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that the next one that comes along is going to have the same patterns and the same uh, growth rate and infection rate. And you might be able to test for this one, but you can't test for this one. This, there might be a All vaccine that. for this one, but not for that there's one. About, there's really only two decisions that yeah. a number of countries made that I think you can legitimately criticise them for, whether it was based on expert knowledge or politicians being or a combination of the, of the, of the two. Mm. The first mistake that was made was not testing. Mm -hmm. That seems to matter quite a lot. You know, and the countries that tested a lot, even if they pursued otherwise different strategies, like Australia's strategy was very different from Taiwan's and that kind of thing, but both have had a successful outcome. Yeah. But both countries tested extensively. 
that seems to be an issue. And the other thing that has happened, and you've, as a result of it, you've actually finished up with the absurd situation where developing countries have finished up doing better than developed countries. Mm-hmm. And the one I'm thinking of here is India, yeah. um, is countries that discharge people into care homes. Yes. I was going to say the entire continent of Africa has had like a couple thousand deaths, the entire continent yes. out of over, over a billion one people. thing. Every, although I am concerned about the economic damage being done in sure. a lot of African countries. Oh, I've got South African relatives, and definitely. I just don't think that's good for that country, what they're doing there. Mm. What, it's what, really what's not, because it's got what, terrible unemployment already. What's the speci- what are they doing there specifically? I'm not aware. Very, very severe lockdowns. And oh, they've okay. also, um, you know, and basically because of their heavy dependence on tourism mm-hmm. and people aren't, can't even travel internally okay, to yeah. do internal tourism, basically they're, they're one really massive export industry. Okay. that is known to be exceptionally good and they're very good at it and they've got lots to see. I was in South Africa in January and February. Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinary country. The thing that they can use to get themselves out of an economic hole is being taken from them and I think that's that's to the extent that various African countries, sunny countries, yeah. uh, didn't discharge people into the elder, uh, sick people into care homes. Yeah. India didn't start discharge sick people into care homes. Mm -hmm. So you finished up with this incredible situation where a country like India has actually doing better than pretty much the whole of Western Europe, except Germany. Mm -hmm. And what did Germany do? Test and not discharge sick people into care homes. Yeah. Yeah. So those do seem to be the two legitimate areas where every country that did that failed to test and was sloppy about where sick people finished up from hospitals. Um, and put them in care homes where they were less likely to be well cared for or yeah. more likely to spread the coronavirus. Yeah. Those seem to be two things you can legitimately criticise them for. But the thing is, they didn't have powers of prognostication. Nobody can see the you know, prediction is difficult, no, of especially course about not. the future. Of course not. And in um, a, uh, I don't know, I, I, I haven't been, I've been relatively, I haven't been silent on the topic, but I've been fairly quiet on it just because it's become, like a lot of things do, it's just become such a, a mess of opinions and noise mm. and people yelling at each other and creating weird false dichotomies of right now, you know, there's this whole, we've got two options. We can lock everything. We can kill the economy and people live, or we can open the economy and everyone dies. And if you want to open yes, the economy, yes, yes. it's because you want grand, it's, it's almost become a meme at you this want point. Right? You, you, want, you want grand, <laughs> and it's just kind of like, guys, come so, it is, it is it's so bad. weird. It's, it's like talking to children. I'm just like, look, there's, a sliding scale here. We're not talking about an on and off switch. We're talking yeah. about, you know, and, and there are legitimate concerns and questions of civil liberties, right? Like you've got people, there's places where people are being arrested for going to the park or for going to jog, right? Some, or someone, yeah, it's, there are legitimate questions here, right? You've got people wanting to download apps or people are talking about microchipping people. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, well, that's a whole other concern here now for something that well, has. I did, it did yeah. concern me that anti-lockdown protests, and I know it was full of maddies, yeah. people who think 5G causes coronavirus and all this <laughs> bonkers conspiracy stuff, which I've written about. Yeah. I, I, I've written about for The Critic, which is a British magazine, and I'm in the process of writing about for The Spectator, also yeah. British, but it'll come out in Australia as well. Um, and the conspiracies are mad. I acknowledge that. But the point, the whole point of civil liberties is that even cranks get them. Mm-hmm. And I was quite alarmed 
to see at that protest in Hyde Park where the cranks were out and Piers Corbyn was there and he was being king of the cranks and he's an even bigger crank than Jeremy Corbyn, which is quite difficult to do. (laughs) Um, And the problem is he's also a smart crank. The guy's an astrophysicist. He's very, very clever. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, he he was out there and I saw, and it never looks good, and I tweeted to this effect and had an enormous bin fire in my Twitter comments. Um, Join the party. I I, I saw um, one solitary black man set upon by five coppers, Mm -hmm. white coppers, Mm -hmm. who arrested him. And, okay, yeah, black people commit crimes too, so whoop-de-doo. But in the process of arresting him, once they'd subdued him, one of the coppers knee-dropped him. Oh. And the man had already been subdued. Yeah. And I just sort of sat there and thought, I don't like this. Yeah. That's a fairly obvious and flagrant breach of fairly basic civil liberties. Yeah. And the too many members of Her Majesty's Constabulary are enjoying this far too much. That's exactly, that's that's literally, you, you pretty much took the words out of my mouth. That's what I've said before. The police, certain, not all of them, not even most of them, but mm. there are certain people both in the police and also government officials, especially if mm. you see what some of the governors and mayors are doing in the USA, for example, where it's yes, going state yes, by I've state. Heard it on the Bush Telegraph. The yes, Memphis, yeah. some of them are enjoying this too much, right? They're they're doing they're 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 essentially doing compliance tests, right? They're 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 just saying re- very arbitrary things, things that aren't going to keep people safe, right? Things that aren't going to do whatever. For for example, yesterday I, I can't remember which state it was, but um. They, they're now allowing, uh, rest, they're going to reopen restaurants and malls to, I think, 50% capacity, but all churches can only have 10 people in them at a time. Oh, that's ridiculous. Right? How, how, is, that, how is that not the obviously? Thing, the other thing is, I have seen <laughs> yeah. some quite silly complaints. And this is, I mean, and one of the things that just putting that tweet out with the video of the black man getting knee dropped. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I realised in my mentions as this enormous bin fire just developed was that there's the lockdown left. Mm-hmm. They're a particular species of lefty who can yes. work from home. They're upper middle class yes. and <laughs> the lockdown can go forever as far as they're concerned. All, all it's not going to damage yeah. their, their career no. or life or ability to educate their children or, yeah. or so on and so forth. But on a counterpoint, there's also the pro-police right Mm-hmm. Now, despite the fact that there is a degree, although it's not perfect, correlation between remain, lockdown left, and left of centre politics, yes. leave, anti-lockdown or moderated lockdown, um, and uh, and Brexit, mm-hmm. uh, there is a degree of correlation, but it's by no means perfect. What I found was I would have the lockdown left not knowing what to do with themselves because they think they're anti-racist and he was a black man fairly yeah. transparently being treated very yes. badly because, yes. he, because of his skin colour. And so they didn't know what to do with themselves. And then I had my right-wing friends who mm-hmm. really do object for quite good economic reasons to aspects of the lockdown, then trying to stick up for the five white coppers who are on yeah, this guy. Yeah. And I'm just going, trying to navigate between the lockdown left and the mm-hmm. police right with the coronavirus situation yeah. is just incredibly difficult. And I just finished by having to say, look, I'm a lawyer. I started mm-hmm. at the criminal bar. I have, whilst I'm generally pro the police and I am aware of what happens when you have, for example, um, the police not prosecuting Pakistani Muslims with the, mm-hmm. the, the grooming gangs and that kind of thing on the basis of political yeah. correctness. I, I recognise that that's wrong. This is also wrong. Knee dropping yes. a man in the middle of Hyde Park because he wants to, he disagrees with the lockdown. That's also wrong. You know, you need yeah. to be able to hold these two thoughts. Yeah, and, and when that's a big problem with this sort of political tribalism. It's it's why I don't like to. I don't mind other people defining me politically or trying to like. I you know people can label me what they like. 
right? And I certainly have my leanings, but I, I don't label myself because I don't ever want to get caught in this thing of feeling like I need to defend something that is wrong because it's come from inverted commas, my side. My or, team, yes. yes trying not to reduce politics to football. No, or, or, or I can't accept a good idea that comes from the other side. You see what I mean? And it's like, no, like, I, I stand on my principle. I'm not really, I'm as cheesy as it may sound. I'm, I'm like, I'm pro, I'm pro human, right? So I'm, I don't need to narrow it down any, any more than that. I think that most people are decent, regardless of their race, their color, their gender, whatever, whether they're in the, in the police or whatever. But there are bad, there are bad apples in each group. And in fact, if you are pro police, as far as I'm concerned, you need to call out when they do go wrong. Yes. Right. Because people because, won't believe you. Yes. Because if people don't do that, then it beca- you, you kind of become a hack, right? That's just, that's just being dishonest because saying that police don't ever make mistakes and that's because it's, and with police, it's like extra important because police can kill people, right? <laughs> but police have powers. It's very simple. Yeah. Police have powers that the average citizen does not. So if police make serious cock ups, then that has a lot more gravity than, I don't know, a school teacher making yes. a cock up because a school teacher is not going to kill someone, right? A police officer might, might shoot somebody, might injure someone as their, you know, knee drop someone or mm-hmm. arrest someone totally incorrectly or whatever. Like we've seen the consequences of this many times. So as someone who is, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not interested. I'm not one of these people trying to dismantle the police as an institution no, or something. No, no that's and, silly. and I think, I mean, and, and this is once again, this is the sort of, to me, the sort of essence of the conservative contract between yeah. the generations. Institutions are only worth preserving if you continue to put into them. You can't just yeah. draw from them. You have to put into them. Mm-hmm. And that includes a sort of sensible process of ensuring that they stay fit for purpose. Yes, exactly. Um, and then yeah, they know they can't is, just get away with stuff because if you if you let them if you if people let those things slide right if the police knee drop someone here and then they tase someone there and they shoot someone there when they're not supposed to and you keep defending them then the police themselves over time realize and know oh we can actually get away with abusing our power and I I don't know I th- I think that's why um like I I really like a. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. I'm I'm probably more of a if if someone's going to call me a conservative, I'm probably more of like a I'm probably more of a Republican than a Tory. Um, yes. So, <laughs> I've, yeah. Like, I, this bizarre thing that you have an American accent. You don't have an American accent. You sort of have a. It's in the you middle. You have a TV accent, basically. It's in the middle. It's yeah. Very, <laughs> it's very plain, difficult to locate globally. Yeah. Sort of accent. You use a few British expressions. Yeah. But you don't sound to me like an American. That's interesting. You know, I, I mean, I see people constantly saying, "Oh, Zuby has an American accent," and I'm going. He doesn't. <laughs> I mean, he might use a few American expressions, and yeah. obviously, I know the the the, the custom in, yeah. in the music that you do is to use an American accent, but that's different. I mean, lots of musicians sound American, and they their mouth, and they sound like they're from yeah. Essex. Yeah, I mean, I went I went to an American school up until from the ages of four till eleven. So you know, I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I did go to an American school, so I, I used to sound one hundred percent American. But then I came to the so you UK. Go American, and that American, does sound yeah. American. Yeah, you, you but then I came. I came to the in the name. <laughs> yeah, I came to the UK. I went, I went to boarding school from eleven, and then I, I was in school here. But I was still. I only moved to the UK permanently in two thousand and eight. So I've, I was back and forth between the two countries for a long period. So was my, this in I'm, Saudi Arabia or Nigeria as well? Um, you know, so no, so around. So I haven't. I've never lived in Nigeria. So my family background is from Nigeria. But um, I moved to Saudi when I was one, and I lived in Saudi from age one up until twenty. 
So I was in Saudi for almost 20 years. But in an international school. Yeah, international school, American school system. So I, I was in that school system up until fifth grade. And then after that, I came to the UK, went to boarding school here and was back and forth between the two countries. Um, between here and Saudi. Yeah, so you finished so. up with this very, uh, I mean, my father used to describe it as a Euro pudding accent, Euro where pudding. It's, it's just a, it's just a mixture of, you know, you say grade, which is yeah. very American, whereas British and Australian people say year. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. So oh, I think but, but I, I, I code switch. This is the thing. So if yeah, I'm spe- code switching, I code switch. Yeah. So if I'm, t- if I'm, if you hear me recording a podcast with an American, I will use different words for certain things than I will if I'm doing a podcast with a British person. And it's just automatic, just for clarity of understanding. Um, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have a Euro pudding accent. I mean, my father used to joke about it. and Whereas he had this, I mean, he's from Scotland, but he was this sort of social class and background. They used to joke, there's a joke, and I'm sure it's still true. It certainly was when I was last living in Scotland, which was in 2014, uh, that you get a certain sort of Scottish person who wants to be English and the main way that they show this is by having a home counter's accent. Okay. So my father spoke the Gaelic and could do a perfectly good Scots accent, sound completely Scottish amongst his Scottish friends if he wanted to. But whenever he spoke around the family or around anybody else, he had an RP. That's funny. Yeah, you know, Boris Johnson accent, basically. <laughs> uh, very quite posh. <laughs> and it's just, and so, I, I mean, I've finished up with this. As a result of going back and forth from the age of four between these two countries, I've got this very, very peculiar accent. Yeah. I go to Australia and they go, you sound weird. And then I come <laughs> here and then they go, you sound weird. <laughs> yeah. The nature I, I, of I love, I love accents. I think accents are just, uh, I think accents are a very cool thing. I think it's like a, to me, it's, it's like a, I don't know, like a fingerprint of where someone, of, of someone's history right just from just from hearing someone's accent you can there's like there's a story behind it right like whether that's on a national on a regional level so within the uk i love it i mean with my music i travel around the uk and it's one of the coolest things that it's it's subtle but obvious is when you're in each different city or in each different town just how differently people, other regional how, variation it's amazing in the Con- uk is extraordinary especially considering how I mean, small it is Yes. Well, I mean, the US has this as well, but mm-hmm. it's over a much larger area. I yes. mean, but you're never going to mistake a New York accent for an Arkansas accent. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. They really sound different. Yeah. Um, yeah but it's no, over it's... a much larger area, whereas you can just go to the next village yes. in this country and the accent is different. Yeah. You see Even... that in Italy as well. Oh, really? Yeah, it's okay. irreducibly regional and you get mm. you get regional variations in, in, in the language that's used and the the style of speech. They all speak yeah. standard Italian, yeah. but they often have dialect as well. And the dialects are ancient. They go back to antiquity. The R- Roman writers wrote about dialects. Okay. You know, there was Latin and then there were all dialects. Yeah, yeah. And they have fed into the sort of lang- what underlies modern standard Italian. So a lot of countries have this. Yeah, they do. No, they they all do. I just I just think it's, it's I don't know, I, I just like accents. I just think it's a cool thing because there's there's a story behind each one. You just hear someone speak and it's like, oh, there's a story there. Whenever someone yes. hears, hears me talk, especially if someone hears that I'm British and then they hear my voice, they're like, okay, there's something there. Like, I need to, I need to yeah. ask him about that. <laughs> you know, there's... I mean, you don't sound particularly, you don't sound British either, but the thing yeah. is this idea that uh, before I heard your voice and before I met you at yeah. that function, Jordan Peterson thing, mm. I mean, I kept seeing this, oh, Zuby sounds American. And then you got up to speak and I'm going, some people need to get better ears. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, because it's if it's there, it's so soft. It's yeah. such a soft accent. You know. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Awesome, Helen. We're, 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 we're around the hour mark right now. So this is what, again, it's been awesome having you on the show. You're, you're one of those people. I feel like we could sit here and talk for but five hours and it would, the it, it would never get boring. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, let people know where, where they can find you and check out your work online. Um, well, okay. My Twitter handle is at underscore Helen Dale. But there is an underscore first because obviously mm-hmm. Helen Dale is an exceedingly commonplace name and there were lots of them on Twitter before me. Okay. Helen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Zuby, and good luck with, with your ongoing career. Thank you very <laughs> I much. I look forward to seeing more from you. Okay, it's coming. Thank you. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand, stunting you destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam, put some respect on my name. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones, who get it done.